Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir, back in Boston, one of the places where we tend to find some of our most interesting guests, and we've got two of them today. Uh, Jefferson Macklin from Bar Mazzana. Mazzana. Well done. Uh, open about a year, year and a half, and I've heard amazing things about it. Um, but you've got an amazing story of your own that matches uh, Bar Mazzana, so we're eager to have you and eager to have this conversation. Really pleased to be here, Billy. Thanks very much. Thanks. And Connor Shapiro, um, I've known your work for at least the last uh, five or six years. I think it's since 2011 that you've been president and or CEO of the St. Boniface Haiti Foundation doing incredible work there and um, everything I've heard about the hospital that you run and the lives you're saving. Um, it's just, it's an amazing story. Connor, we're thrilled to have you. Well, thanks for having me, Billy. Um, Jefferson, I want to start with you. You know, it's, it's, you have such an interesting background. <laughs> thanks <And> very much. <laughs> well, I, one of the things I found is that people in the nonprofit sector like Connor and I and people, people in your world, which is now the restaurant industry, uh, almost none of us took a kind of a straight line or a straight path to get there. Uh, you, I think, uh, you were just telling me, kind of were raised in the D.C. area, my territory, which is where I am most of the time, uh, but actually went to West Point, uh, graduated, went into the service. Um, were you from a military family? I was, mu- uh, multi-generation, every male really? Macklin in the U.S. Really? Yeah, in, in what branch of the service? I, I was Corps of Engineers. Most uh, Macklins have gone into the infantry, but uh, since uh, pre-Civil War, yeah. So and so no was pressure. There, no, no, that's what I was going to ask you. Was there any ever question that you were going to go into the military? Uh, I applied to one school in high school, yeah, and that yeah. was West Point. And that was, yeah. I don't think that that was a conversation I had until actually I showed up at West Point, and then at the time I'm getting paid to be a student. It's a full ride essentially, where you're clothed and fed and taught and uh, housed. And so in the day and age pre-internet, uh, you could essentially shut off all communications and be self-sufficient as a freshman in college. And I chose to do that uh, at a protest, but I also wasn't going to quit the experience I was undergoing. Um, and I think that was just a kind of thing in my family. It was just assumed that the males would go. Um, it wasn't an outright discussion I had ever had with my parents. It was more, um, I wish there had been a discussion that had said, maybe you should look at some other places. But instead, it was it was not condoned. It was uh, certainly encouraged. But it was uh, it was a subliminal, you must go. Um, but I think when you're when you're young and you're you're still trying to figure your stuff out, uh, without uh, some encouragement or prodding to maybe go outside of that boundary, uh, I it very much to me was a you will go here. Um, and and so how do you characterize the the whole experience? Well, in in the rearview mirror, it's it's uh, well it's put. I always think of it. It's a great place to be from, not at. Um, West Point. It's an amazing institution. Um, you always do the woulda, coulda, shouldas, but I think I am who I am today because of the experience. It's it's an amazing uh, educational uh, institution that really teaches the well-rounded person. You know, ethically, physically. We're just talking about physical fitness, yeah. uh, physically and uh, academically. Well, one of our guests on uh, Ad Passion and Stir was uh, uh, retired General Mark Hurtling, and he was telling us uh, just uh, recently that. Uh, when he had the job of being in charge of all basic training, he found you know tremendous problems with the fitness and the the pool of recruits. Did you see any of that? I imagine by the time you get to West Point, you're looking at some you know pretty in shape, pretty together folks. Yeah, at that point it was. But you know, then you you graduate, you become an officer in the military, and you then have troops that that very much represented that. Now this was um, I'm dating myself, but this was you know Desert Storm time frame. So. 
you know, you didn't have the screens like everybody has now and the phones and uh, the stagnant lifestyle. I mean, it was a it was a much different world that we lived in then. And I did not see as much of it. And, and in the unit I was in, I was um, lucky enough to be with with troops that were what we would have called high speed troops, you know. Um, and so it was an what, amazing no, What's that mean exactly? Just means they, they have a different focus. They have a different tempo that they operate at. And uh, so I was in the 101st Airborne Division and, um, you know, it's a great unit. And so there was a little bit of a higher standard in my mind that that uh, it attracted. So, um, yeah. And you were deployed in Desert Storm? That's right. Desert, uh, yeah, award, all expenses paid. The bronze, <laughs> all expenses paid. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> awarded the Bronze Star? I was, yes. Wow, yeah. incredible. I, you incredible. know. It, to me, it was we kind of showed up for the big game, and and the other team didn't. So uh, it it compares in no way to uh, what's being what's occurring now in in Iraq and in Afghanistan. It was it was definitely more of a conventional war, and uh, a different experience altogether. Yeah. And uh, before I bring Connor into this, uh, one last question about that is it is that does it feel like part of your past now, or is it still because of your family and and what you went through? Is it still part of who you are i'm it, sure it is in a some way but absolutely or, or is yeah. it like to seem like distant memory no no it's it's still very much defined who i am and at a very formative age was very instrumental in defining who i was and i often refer back to it because in this day and age of um whether it's you know loosening standards uh, physically or ethically uh it's 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 a touchstone that i i think about daily no question about it um, um they're, they're, it's probably a good thing to have a military guy running a restaurant it, 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 you that, try to that, keep that the trains running on time. Yeah, yes. it's not. A, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, one of the things I did, and, and I look forward to speaking more about the whole uh, the whole mix that we have here in the room. Um, but I became very enamored when I was in business school of the merger of creativity and business. And how do you respect both? And uh, that's what I really started, the, you know, the direction. I've been in the music business, been in the, the restaurant business, both industries very similar. And so I look forward to, to talking more about that. Good. Well, Connor, you, you serve in a way that I'm uh, not having being from a military family. My dad was in World War II, but I think that was the extent of it on our <laughs> side. He was there for four years. Wow. Uh, and like that generation, never spoke of it when he no, that's came right. home. So I know very little about <laughs> his time, although I've been kind of going through his papers lately and trying to you know get more of a, of a fix on that. But um, I'm I'm from a community that serves domestically in terms of you know trying to, whether it's national service or community service or nonprofit work. Connor, how did you get into the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I uh, started uh, working in Haiti and volunteering in Haiti in 2003. Uh, I was uh, similar to a lot of liberal arts grads where I had no idea what I was going to do. A little different, I think, from West Point uh, in terms of uh, not having much of a channel at all. You'd be surprised there's more income when you're forced to go you don't know what you want to do. So I'm, I'm fascinated. So what brought you there, though, in 2003? Yeah. So I uh, originally visited uh, with my father, visited Haiti with, with St. Boniface uh, in 2001, and uh, trying to figure out ways of uh, figuring out what I was passionate about, I arrived in, in Haiti in 2003 as a volunteer English teacher, uh, and I thought I would be there for a year. Uh, I both was a horrible English teacher <laughs> uh, and also realized that I wanted to get more and more involved in the healthcare work that St. Boniface was involved in. Um, and so I thought I was going to be there for a year and then figure out what I was going to do and, and now I've been with St. Boniface for about 15. And say a little bit more about what St. Boniface actually is, what it does. Uh, is, that, is there a faith-based element to it? Uh, there's there's actually not a faith-based element. It started with a strong faith-based element, uh, but uh, we are now, so we, when I first arrived in 2003, 
we were a small clinic, a couple doctors seeing a few thousand patients a year. Uh, now we're the largest uh, health facility for 2.3 million people on the southern peninsula of Haiti. Uh, and so, 2.3 million. Yeah. 2.3 million. That's yeah, unbelievable. We, it, we, we uh, have seen last year we saw between our clinic and our hospital uh, over 100,000 patient visits. And what's the nature of, of what you see? The, the, the typical patient presents with what? All kinds of things. I mean, people are coming from six, eight, ten hours away. And, mm. and as we look at um, you know nutrition, nutrition's uh, impact on what we're seeing, we're just seeing a lot of diseases of uh, massive poverty. I mean, uh, you're only an hour and a half from Miami, so it's quite shocking to see. But a lot of it is related, uh, especially with children, to food insecurity. Uh, but we're also seeing infectious diseases, uh, and we're seeing chronic illnesses that you would see here too, we'll see diabetes, mm-hmm. hypertension, other illnesses. But it's just a catch-all because uh, there's nowhere else for people to go. So they, we end up getting all kinds of different patients, uh, women in labor, uh, neonates across the mm-hmm. board. And how did you become the head of the St. Bonifacio Haiti Foundation? I uh, like to joke that it's kind of a war of attrition. If you stay long <laughs> enough. That's right. <laughs> but uh, so I, I took over. Uh, so I stayed in Haiti and lived in Haiti uh, for seven years, from 2003 to 2010. And you may remember the earthquake of 2010. Yeah. I, I had uh, taken over the hospital and running the hospital about two weeks before the earthquake um, and uh, stayed on. And then uh, decided and, and worked out with the founder, the co-founder, Nanette Caniff, uh, who actually started St. Boniface in public housing. So she had 10 kids, was living in public housing, uh, and started St. Boniface Haiti Foundation. She was looking uh, to really uh, retire from the post. And so when I came back after the earthquake, I took over from Nanette. And you must have, you must have the language skills then for the French Creole. And do you have that? I mean, was that something you already had or is that something you built up? Uh, something I, I built up. Wow. So there's a, UMass Boston has a Haitian Creole Institute. Uh, and so I went for three weeks before I went down. Uh, and then there were, there were two Americans there at the time when I first arrived, uh, but not the most talkative folks. So I yeah. was forced to Sink either, or swim. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. either learn the language or not talk to anybody. <laughs> and, and is your, so I've been to Haiti a few times, nothing like you, but I've, since I've been there a few times, I've followed it pretty closely. Um, and I'd say from, from my distance, it's hard to tell whether things are getting better or worse. I always have the sense that they're getting better because there's amazing people like you, Jim and Karen and Sarah, who have been on this podcast, who are doing, you know, just actually pioneering work there. But at the same time, the poverty doesn't seem to release its grip in any fundamental way. The governance structure doesn't seem to improve. What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I think all uh, Haitians and those who I talk to, and my wife is Haitian, so, mm-hmm. you know, we family, I think everyone is very hopeful that uh, Haiti can move out of the, the poverty trap that it's been in for so long. I think what I'm concerned about and remain concerned about is uh, outside forces and their influence on Haiti and its politics. I think uh, Haiti, no question after the earthquake, has needed a massive amount of investment. Uh, there was some growth right before the earthquake in terms of the economy, and then that was lost with the earthquake, which would happen in any country. Sure. I think what I'm concerned about now and what many Haitians are concerned about is just what's the international community going to do in terms of support? Not that Haitians want a handout, but there does need to be some sort of hand up in order to be able to get out of the poverty trap they find themselves in. And when you talk about outside forces, do you mean both for, for good and 
for for bad? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, who are the bad guys? Yeah. I don't. I don't know if it's as clear who the bad guys are. I think Jefferson yeah. could get some of his yeah. his old buddies to take yeah, care yeah, of them. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, well, and actually, uh, Jefferson, we worked uh, with the 101st Airborne after the earthquake. Yeah. Uh, we had. I worked. Uh, it's interesting. We had. We got a call from uh, from the 101st Airborne asking us to go with them after the earthquake because uh, Mother Teresa's home uh, for children. Uh, had uh, massive structural damage. They were out in the courtyard, and the 101st was doing a great job of trying to figure out how to get them aid, uh, but they didn't know what to do around nutritional issues. So they asked us to come in and work with the children, and some of our staff came in. Uh, I've, you know... I've never had a sensation like it, but uh, it's the only time in my life I had a Humvee yeah, with guys it. in front of us and a Humvee behind <laughs> us driving through Port-au-Prince. That's it. There's it's a good yeah. way to work. It's yeah. You you tend to beat traffic that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so when when you guys talk about the 101st Airborne, like you know it, I only know it as an iconic name. How big is it? Uh, it it's I mean it's legendary, but like what are we sure. talking about when we're talking about the 101st? Yeah. Airborne? So when you're uh, at least when I was in and I and I you know I've been 20 years removed now, but it typically is about three brigades. And plus support, so it usually ends up being about eighteen to twenty thousand people, um, and each brigade has its own support network. So you have tons of helicopters. Um, you don't have a lot of, you know, there are no tanks per se or those kind of heavy equipment in the hundred first because they do everything by helicopter, um, and so they're called airborne air air mobile, um, so that they can do everything by helicopter. But that makes a situation like Haiti faced, you know, ideal for the hundred first because they don't need roadways. They don't they they can hop and skip uh, anywhere they need to go. And, and know how to carry and sling load and, and get things to where you need to go. And Connor, are you still going back and forth from here to Haiti? It must be hard in a way yeah. to do this work from Boston, although you've also got a lot of support that you're able to generate from here. Yeah, so we have an office just outside of Boston uh, and a support team around finance and fundraising and other things. Um, but I go back and forth. I do about one week a month in Haiti. Mm-hmm. I'll say it, it is uh, hard. I mean, it's hard to make the transition um, between... Haiti uh, and the reality there, and then you know you just jump on a plane, mm-hmm. and an hour and a half later you're in Miami. It, it, it's a it's a pretty jarring change all the time. Um, but yeah, I'm back and forth. Has Boston been historically the base for the kind of business side, or for our organization? Yes, yes. is that right? Yeah. Okay. And isn't there also a very large Haitian uh, expat community here, or diaspora, or whatever you would call it? I think it's one of the largest in the country outside of Miami. It is. It's Miami, New York, and then Boston. Uh, I don't know. How did that happen? Yeah. Where did that begin? It's definitely not the weather. I know. It's not (laughs) climate. Yeah. Yeah, It's not climate-based. But I I think like any uh, group, you know, someone in the family shows up, finds that Boston's accepting, there's jobs here, and then uh, ask others to come and join them and say, you know, we can work here. It's the second largest immigrant group in uh, Boston. Uh, I think uh, Chinese are first and then uh, Haitians second. So hundreds of thousands of Haitians here in Boston. And I'm assuming they take, uh, at least a portion of them must take quite an interest in what you're doing. Absolutely. And I think uh, the most amazing thing about the Haitian community in Boston is how much they support their family back home. You know, they're getting constant phone calls. It's, It's amazing when you think about these are people who are working two, three, four jobs and and hard work and they're taking a significant percentage of that money mm-hmm. and, and sending send it back home, home yeah. to make sure that everybody you know can get food on the table or go to school that's really the the bulk of uh, the economy in Haiti is people in the US Haitians in the US or Canada sending money back home 
Um, are there Haitians in the restaurant industry, Jefferson? There, there absolutely are. We, uh, you know, we have about sixty-two employees. Um, it kind of equates when you when you calculate full time to about thirty-eight people full time. Um, and uh, at this time, no, we don't. We have heavily uh, Central America uh, represented, but but very similar story where you have people working two or three jobs, and a bulk of that goes home. You know, and so we try to create ways uh, instead of doing live paychecks, we actually create uh, give them cash cards. So it, it enables them to actually wire money from one card to another uh, without fees, as opposed to you know getting taken advantage of at some of these check cashing places or wire transfer places. For that very reason, because they they do so much transferring of money. Um, Jefferson, I still haven't gotten my arms around how you went from <laughs> West Point to building yeah. some of the best, yeah. uh, most popular restaurants in. In Boston, you mentioned uh, having this kind of creative um, impulse and creative spark well, so, and starting in the music business. Well, you know, you grew up in a military family. Um, y- your life is very defined. And when you have a whole uh, kind of legacy that I had that was in the military, you, you don't really, when there's no career office at West Point necessarily. You know, you don't know what the other options are outside of the military. So we were, we were in a situation where we had just returned from the desert, uh, from Desert Storm, having been eight months deployed. And then we immediately flew out to do an exercise against some fictional situation. And we would fly from Muskogee, Oklahoma, you know, nap of the earth flight in a helicopter, and then land in Fort Chaffee and have a, have a mission that we had to do. And it just was the kind of thing that I think it was September time frame. It was still hot and humid, and it was the last thing you wanted to be doing. Um, it's just a, a kind of Pine Barren type of environment where um, there's a reason there's a training base there and not, you know, um, a lot else. <laughs> and I remember waking up off the, on the ground next to a guy who was a major. I was a first lieutenant. And so he's probably eight to ten years ahead of me in his career. And he looks at me and he says, Macklin, you got to love it. And I was like, no, I hate this <laughs> internally. Most, so I was like, I got to get out of here. I've been to war. I've done, I've been personally challenged. I've, I've led troops. I, I feel like I've scratched that itch. I've done my obligation, but I need to get out. The problem was when I get out, then it's like, to your point, right, Connor, when you like, what do you want to do? What is your passion? And I did not know, you know, all I had been was kind of pre-programmed. So I needed to figure out what that was. Going to business school, a great program down at University of Virginia at, at Darden Business School, um, Gave me two years to. This was after you got after you after came back from being the, deployed. Yes, luckily I'd been you able to retain my school. Virginia residency, so got in-state tuition at, at UVA, uh, uh, Darden School of Business, and so I go there and and basically I spent two years barely learning accounting, not my strong suit, but but instead learning that you can actually do something you're passionate about, and how can you make money doing what you love, and so uh, at that point in time I you know was really getting into music, and really getting into this notion of how do you balance creativity with with profit. And you, one has to respect the other. You can't do one and then neuter the other. And so that got me down this path of, of music. It's still hard to pay the bills. So there's that reality of, you know, fiscal reality that I would be involved in startups that were music backed or based and, and so forth. And then ultimately, though, music starts getting digitized. It's really hard to earn a living at, at, in the music world. And so I made the jump um, at that time into kind of today's rock stars, which are chefs and working with chefs who are the creative influence. What year, what year was this? This was a little over ten years ago. Now. Okay, right. Yeah, that's right. So as chefs so, were really becoming, that's as it. You say, that's it. Rock stars. Of and their own so right. you know, I had the the good fortune to to be uh, in touch with Barbara Lynch, a, a chef here in Boston, and and had the opportunity to step in as she was growing her company to be the the COO of her organization as it was in major growth mode. 
and and so yeah, the military and the structure and the organizational um, strategy that you that you learned from some of those things was able to be applied to here, and and really grow the company and set it up for success. And how many restaurants um, did uh, you oversee when you were with Barbara Lynch's group? Uh, so when I when I joined her, it was uh, three restaurants, about 107 people, and then we grew it which, to which were they? Uh, it was Number Nine Park, B and G okay. Oysters, yep. and and the butcher shop. Uh, soon after joining, uh, a, rest, a small concept called Stir was launched, and then we launched kind of the big mothership, which was down on Congress Street in Fort Point, um, a new part of Boston, new old part of Boston, um, and that was Drink, Montan, and, and Sportello. Yeah, so we we went to about 250 people at that time, and went from about seven million to about 20 million in revenue. Uh, annualized. Now, one of the ways I think about you and Connor kind of in common, as different as you both are, is you're kind of, a, at least everything I've read about you and in the interviews I've seen, you're kind of a hospitality guru focused on how people are treated, whether it's your staff, your team, your guests. And of course, Connor's in the business of serving and treating people as well with different set of needs. But, you know, culturally, I think it's probably very similar. And but you Describe know, it's it's, so, it's something that I actually learned in in the military. Actually, it all it I guess it all goes back to West Point, which is you could see you you had some classmates who tried to put on a persona to say, "How am I going to lead troops? I'm going to pretend like I'm George Patton," and that just didn't work for me. You know, to be a badass and kicks you know kick somebody up and down and and ride ride rough on them. Instead, I I found very early on that that you know I I want to lead troops by saying I'm gonna I'm not going to expect them to do anything I wouldn't do. And if I take care of them, they'll take care of me. And it was really the core base of like what I would call empathy. And to me, the base root of hospitality, the base root of philanthropy is empathy. And, and so I found it a very quick switch to go from leading troops to, to working in restaurants and working with an entire team where you're taking care of guests every day. And I certainly wouldn't feel like I'm a guru. I don't, I don't think of myself as a guru of hospitality, but I do think of myself as, as um, somebody who really believes in empathy, and I think the world could use more of it. And so that's something that you model. Is it something that can be taught, or is it something that can only be modeled? Or is that the big question? Well, but I, I also think, just, you know, similar to Connor going to Haiti, uh, my experience in, in the Middle East and Southwest Asia, I mean, I, I think anytime you see people in dire straits that you have never experienced, tends to wake you up a little bit. And that's the, the, the reason why people should travel more and, and get out and about and see the world. Because I think once you realize how good we have it, then you, 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 know, you start to realize how fortunate you are and what, that you need to give back. Connor, how's your leadership philosophy align or not align with that? Oh, I think it very much aligns with that. I, I think, uh, you know, one of the, in thinking through as it came over to, the, to, to today and to the studio, yeah. Really thinking about, you know, what what drives us as an organization, and I think one of the hard things um, and the realities that we deal with are that I think if people knew uh, just how difficult the situation was, especially in terms of healthcare in Haiti or nutrition, and that they knew that there was something they could do about that, and they also knew that basically all people are people, um, and by living in rural Haiti uh, for seven years where, you know, I was basically pulled out of the U.S. and that's all I really knew for seven years, you just realize just how much in common everybody has. And when you start to see that kind of, uh, that, that real just basic human quality in everyone, 
Um, you can see that within the team we have. And I think, you know, to your leadership style around trying to empathize with the team and making sure that leading by example, but also never asking anybody to do anything you wouldn't do. Uh, I think it resonates very much with the same kind of style that we're trying to do at St. Boniface. But I think that empathy really is across the board, both within the staff and the leadership style, but also with the patients, the, the patients that we have and where they're coming from and the fact that they're human like everybody else. Yeah. So drill down on this just a little bit farther because you're, um, in both of your cases, you're responsible for hiring and training people uh, for whom others' lives and livelihoods are going to depend, uh, or certainly the, uh, the it's quality not life of their or experience. Yeah, it's not life or death. It might be life or death, yeah. but it might be you know their the experience that they have and their ability to to thrive and to succeed. So what do you? Look for. Do you have certain? Um, do you have certain tests or screens when you hire? Do you know it when you see it? Yeah. Well, you know, very standard in the restaurant world. You, you do what's called a stage, and that's where somebody will come up and they they will spend a little bit of time, maybe four hours. It's like an extended interview, but they they will shadow somebody on the floor, and you you do watch for those kind of instincts. You watch for that ability to pick up on body language. And to do the extra, the extra bit that it takes, whether it's helping your fellow employee out or, or doing something for the guest, that um, I, I do think is the determiner of whether somebody has it or not. But that being said, it's not a perfect science. And so we, we have hired some people that within the first few shifts they worked, it was very clear that maybe they should look at a different line of work. Um, I saw an interview with somebody the other day, and he said one, one of the things he tells uh, new employees, I think it was at, it was at a big firm like Goldman Sachs or something like that. He said, uh, "If you're not happy here in the first ten or fifteen days, go go do something yeah, else. That, don't, exactly. don't, don't make all of this miserable because uh, you'll that, know." No, that's right. It. Yeah. Well, and and you know that there is something in the the commonality too is 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 it about service? You know, every every night we go into service, and you're serving the guest. And again, it's not life or death in our situation, but but our goal is to try to have a transformative experience for each guest that shows up that we want them to enjoy the time they're with us, to try to forget their cares. They may have been in traffic. They may have had a death in the family. They may be ill, whatever. And we want you to be able to escape that for a moment in time. And it's, and it's a lot, you know, we do share a lot in common in that regard of where we're, our goal is to provide service. So who have you both learned from, particularly, um, you know, when you get beyond West Point in the Army in terms of learning the business you're in now, uh, mentors, inspirations, anybody that stands out? Yeah, you, you one of the people I think back to often, and and he would never know it, and I had I never had a conversation with him after I actually left the military, but it was a guy named Major Eric Smith, and I don't think he was fond of me, but he and he rode really he rode me really hard. But but one of the things he would he would essentially yell at me as a young lieutenant would be, um, you know, Macklin, uh, don't give me problems, give me solutions. And for whatever reason, I or however I was delivering answers and so forth, you know, I, it really caused me to rethink how. I kind of lived my life, which was you can sit there and complain a lot and and bitch and moan, but the reality is you need to figure it out. And and so that that's one. The, the, the related thought is I, I went through everyone training and I remember something stuck out at me during training, which is one of the one of the things they tell you in training is, you know, if you have a malfunction in flight as you're in, you know, uh, free falling you have the rest of your life to figure it out. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you're not, you know, you're not going to sit there and bitch and moan. What you're going to do is you got to figure that out or else you're going to bounce really high. So, so, um, so those are some life lessons that, again, we're military, but I think people misread a lot of times when I have my military background, they think you're going to show up and you're, you know, rigid and you're, you're inflexible. 
And the reality is what I came out of the military with, and I think a lot of people do, is that ability to overcome, that your, your mind is stronger than your body sometimes, that you can really power through things. Uh, even though you may be physically tired, you can actually mentally focus and get through it. And, uh, and that you really got to look for those solutions instead of giving problems. Yeah, I, I had a similar kind of formative uh, influence. My mentor and my first boss was uh, Senator Gary Hart from Colorado. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in the United States Senate, people are, you know, almost always against everything. Like you're against this nomination, <laughs> yeah, you're right. against this legislation, sure. you're against this increase in this or that. And uh, Senator Hart would always be saying, you know, let's not talk about what I'm against. Let's talk about what I'm for, right? We can't fight something with nothing. You can't just be against. You have to have a, a positive proposal. Uh, a little different than a fix, uh, you know, in the military, but same notion, right? You have to bring something positive to it. How about you, Connor, in terms of mentors and inspiration? I mean, lots of different mentors and, and uh, continue to have lots of different mentors. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether that's people on our board, whether that's people at other nonprofits. But I think the, the most formative uh, people for me have been the actual patients that we try to serve. Uh, I think um, a lot of the time, uh, in nonprofits, uh, those patients are reduced to statistics, uh, or they're uh, reduced to uh, some uh, horrible ad in the middle of the night with them talking on trash heaps. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, when you talk to the patients and hear what their real stories are, and understand where they're coming from, and listen to some of the guidance about what are the services they're looking for, how would they appreciate those services being delivered? That's been some of the most formative time that I've had. And I think, um, you know, whether that's walking out uh, to somebody's home and understanding where our patients are coming from and how uh, their journey to our hospital affects the kind of care they receive, or whether that's trying to understand, boy, they really aren't able to put food on the table. How can we give them this medicine without making sure that they have food as well? It's been very formative. I think the other part of that that, that's been uh, very much a learning experience for me is in the public health world, which is where I come from and where some of my training is, a lot of the discussion is around, boy, this here's how we're going to do things sustainably, or there, here's how we're going to do things in the most cost-effective way. And sometimes that's used as an excuse to not do something, uh, similar to what are we for and what are we, sure. what are we, uh, what are we against. And I think um, an example would be uh, antiretroviral therapy for HIV-AIDS patients. You know, for a long time, it was seen by the public health world that it wasn't a cost-effective measure for uh, treating those with AIDS in the developing world. It was too expensive. Uh, there was actually a U.S. government official who said uh, people in uh, sub-Saharan Africa can't tell time, so they won't be able to tell them. They won't be able to take the meds. Totally false, but uh, it was an argument at the time. And I think by listening to patients, people realized, wait a second, you know, all these people are going straight to the graveyard unless we do something. And by listening to them and their voices, started to have antiretroviral therapy, and AIDS was turned from a death sentence into a chronic illness. So I think, um, you know, for me, the constant reminder to listen to the patients and understand where they're coming from has been incredibly formative for Any me. Any other examples of things that patients have actually said to you that you've actually learned from them? Sure. Uh, an, another thing uh, that, that I learned was um, we were looking at patient fees, and trying to understand what was going on with patient fees. Um, and we had patient fees that, uh, in our terms, would be considered basically free. Um, you know, they were maybe $10 for somebody to come to the hospital or $15 for somebody to come to the hospital. And everyone is making the argument, some of our donors too, saying, 
you know, people won't uh, people won't respect the care unless they're paying something significant like ten or fifteen dollars. So you've got to keep those patient fees in place. And I remember going out to this family and uh, out in the mountains above the hospital, talking to them about patient fees and trying to get a sense of where they were coming from. And they said, "Look, you know, if you take away, if you, if if we have to pay the patient fees, that's money that we can't use mm-hmm. to send our kids to school. And so, if the decision is that we should pay the patient fees, so and our kids don't go to school, then that's what the reality is of these patient fees. Or we could drop the patient fees if you can figure out a way to do that, and then we can make sure our kids go to school. And so, for me, that was so uh, it was such an incredibly important learning experience because." The literature was saying, boy, people need to pay patient fees to respect the care. But our patients were showing us what the real reality was and, and talking in real terms about what it meant to them. Uh, and I think uh, Sergo's family, a uh, family that I know really well uh, from just in the outskirts uh, of uh, Fondeblon, where our hospital is located, is a perfect example. Uh, they uh, have a daily struggle for survival. They're living on less than $2 a day, uh, and they are subsistence farmers. So if it rains and their crops grow, then they get to eat. If it doesn't rain and their crops don't grow, then uh, Sergo, who is uh, 13, and his brothers and sisters, they don't get a, their other four brothers and sisters, they're not going to be able to put food on the table. If it rains and the crops grow, they can maybe put a little bit of money away and be able to pay for primary school fees. If it doesn't rain and the crops don't grow, then maybe they aren't able to go to school. Uh, and so it's just this daily struggle for survival. There's an incredible Haitian uh, emphasis on education, and it's horrible within that emphasis on education that not every kid gets to go to primary school. Um, but people are really uh, fighting a daily fight to put food on the table and school second uh, and healthcare somewhere in that mix. So it's it's a very difficult struggle uh, for survival every day. Um, let's let's talk about. Um, service Jefferson in a way different than the service at a restaurant, but the kind of the role a restaurant plays in a community because you're an anchor of the community and people look to restaurants for everything. You you were talking earlier about chefs being rock stars. Uh, how do you decide uh, what kind of things that you get involved in and, and how much of the restaurant is a vehicle not only for creating a great experience for guests, but to actually create positive change in the community. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, I, a great I'm, question. I'm recruiting. I'm in full recruiting mode Yeah, now. yeah, sure, okay. sure. Yeah, well, you know, it, w- one of the challenges you do face as a restaurant, and we were talking a little bit about it earlier, is you do get approached by a ton of organizations. And you might get approached by uh, a wealthy town, Metro West, uh, you know, a Boston, that that needs a donation for a PTA function, function. or you may get approached by a... a an organization in town that, that needs some help. And it's really hard. You need to prioritize where your dollars are going to go. The fact is restaurants are a very difficult business model. They've become more difficult in the last few years. So you gotta, you got to prioritize where your dollars are going to go. So what we have done is we're relatively new. We're a year and a half old. We're in a re-emerging part of Boston uh, in the part of the South End that's the, uh, the northeast corner of the, the South End called Ink Block um, and New York Street's neighborhood. And you know, we see it as an emerging neighborhood that's still defining itself. And so what we prioritized was getting involved with organizations that were right there in the, the hub of that part of town. Um, I'm now on the board of an organization called More Than Words that really helps uh, youth that are, that are disadvantaged and out of, somewhat out of the program 
uh, or out of the traditional programs and, and have been kind of lost by the system. And um, they run a social enterprise and, and they sell, um, they go out into the Boston communities, collect books and actually sell them online. So they have over $2 million in, in top line revenue selling books online, but what they're really learning is how to how to run a business. And, and this is, uh, we could find it at morethanwords.org? Uh, uh, morethanwords.org, yeah, okay, that's right. Excellent. So, uh, But there, there's a location in Waltham, there's a location in Boston uh, on uh, Berkeley Street, and they're in the process of, of building a new function. But we, we love that they were in our neighborhood and that we could align with them and help them out and make more people aware of what, what great things they're doing. Um, but but a restaurant's really at the cross-section of so many things. You know, in today's world, again, with everybody's nose in the screen, the one place where people seem to come out and actually interact with fellow human beings is in a restaurant. And so we have the opportunity as restaurant owners to, between your employees, your suppliers, your investors, your guests, you touch a lot of people um, and have an impact on a lot of people. And so to me, it's it's an honor and a privilege to be able to own a restaurant and have that kind of sway and impact on a, on a community because the neighborhood, we really are trying to have Bar Metzana be that kind of hub for, for the New York streets neighborhood where we're, where we're in. Well, that's what I was going to ask you for Bar Metzana. What is the, what's, what's the, the feel of it? What's the vibe? What's, what's the, the vibe? what's the brand promise? You, sure. You, yeah. What, right. What, right. What, 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 well, people, you know, what feeling do they take away? In addition my partner, to like, what's the best thing to eat there? Absolutely. So, so I have the good fortune to be partnered with a husband wife team, Colin Lynch and his wife, Heather, uh, two amazing individuals worked with them with, uh, within Barbara's group. Uh, for over eight years. And so, you know, I, I don't have anything to do with the food. That's all Colin. He's the chef. Yeah, you know, I make a mean bowl of cereal. Um, and so Colin's all in charge of the food and Heather's in charge of the service and hospitality. And then I take care of the business itself. And so the three of us are, are really well well matched to to cover all the areas. Um, but, you know, Bar Mitzana is a coastal Italian restaurant that follows Colin's um, emphasis and his love. He loves pasta and he loves, uh, you know, raw fish. So we have crudo, uh, which is kind of like Italian sashimi, and we have uh, crostini and and pasta, all handmade every day. And then the the restaurant itself is very light and airy. We wanted it to be kind of anti restaurant design right now, which tends to be dark and wooded and wrought iron and and uh, loud. And instead, it's it's a lot of windows. It's a very open area environment with a little bit of a mid century modern vibe. And uh, we just want you know we want people to come and have a little break from the stress and strain of life and and have a great meal with warm hospitality. And guess what? It's not your typical small plate environment. It's actually a more traditional sequenced, what we call kind of active restaurant touring where, you know, we'll take it and we'll we'll run the evening for you so that you have, you know, you can order your entrees. You're not going to get the message like, oh, all the plates are going to come out at once, you know, as they, they're they prepared by the kitchen. No, you know, we think it's important to actually have some some rhythm to the meal and, and have an enjoyable time. So, Can't wait to get there. Yeah, you you, you described that well. Right, good, you made good. it sound very appealing. <laughs> We're fans. We we tried to design a restaurant we wanted to go to, uh, and we hope we we accomplish that. Uh, Connor for Saint Boniface, how do you think about your you know your brand promise, if you can call it that? What's the what's the takeaway that your your donors, your stakeholders, your patients have from their experience with Saint Boniface? Yeah, and I think the key for us is we're trying to make sure that we provide basic health care services for the most vulnerable. And as we make different decisions, we're trying to focus all of our attention on what's going to make the biggest difference for those who are at the bottom part of the economy, those who are the poorest. What we also believe is that we're building different programs within that intervention that can be a model for other places like rural Haiti. There are lots of places in the world that we feel like can benefit 
from programs like our biomed technician training program or how we've developed our supply chain to Haiti. Whatever it is, we feel like those are models that can be brought to other places. And we want to make sure that we're starting to really document what we're doing so that others can uh, learn from some of the lessons we've learned while we're in rural Haiti. So I think the key is services, number one and foremost, but also developing this model that can be replicated. See, I'm, I'm just blown away, though. Um, you know, oh, you run a hospital in Haiti, right? You're a philanthropy. But but people hear that and think immediately what the skill set must be. to be. I mean, you guys cover the gamut when you're talking about supply chain. I mean, I was impressed by the fact that you guys are, are jack, you know, you have jack of all trades and that's required to do what you're doing. And I, I think that's, that's how we feel in the restaurant business. People think you own a restaurant and it's a sexy, you have a party every night, right? The reality is, you know, you're a marketer, you're an accountant, you're a, a you know, doing supply chain uh, analysis, all this stuff. And, and I just think that that's a fascinating thing that um, too many people that maybe are, are a, a peg in a hole in a corporate environment don't, don't fully understand is what the breadth that you have to have to do. I mean, same with you guys. I mean, share a strength. I mean, you're, you're, there's a lot on the table that you guys have to do, and you guys do it really well. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, how many, how should we understand, you talked about how many people St. Boniface serves. How many Haitians are still underserved in a really critical way when it comes to health care? I mean, to be honest, it's probably 90% of Haitians. I mean, are, I, are underserved. Are underserved. Notwithstanding Absolutely. your great work, the work of uh, Partners in Health. Yeah, and, wow. I, and that's I, a big I, number. Yeah, yes. because I, I, you know, there's a, a few hospitals that are functional, and that no matter what, when you walk in the door, you know, you can get care. There's not many of them, and uh, when you look at other health services, let's say community health workers, people from their communities that are trained in some basic preventative care, there's more of a stretch of people who can uh, provide those services. But in general, I mean, if you need a C-section. Yeah. You know, you, you only have a couple places you can go. And when we look at our surgical program, where there's some very basic surgeries going on and some more uh, complicated ones, but let's say appendicitis, some of our patients have gone to four or five hospitals before they come for, to the operating rooms at St. Boniface. Just to be able to get an appendicitis. Just to get appendicitis taken care of. Uh, and they, we actually did a study of the number of hospitals that patients went to. It was three to four hospitals on average that patients would come to before they came to us for um, referral services. And so they're going six, seven, eight hours away and then not finding care and then coming to us. So just huge unmet need. It's ironic to be having this conversation in Boston where we must have the oh, best health care oh, system question. between Mass General and Beth Israel and the yeah. Brigham. I just had a routine annual physical, which I do once a year. And, you know, it was just like every possible service and right on time. They tell you you're going to be in at 1015 and out at, you know, 1032. And that's exactly the way it works. And you just think what a blessing that is. And to think that people don't have even an emergency situation access to that. It's, uh, it's, it's almost something I think most Americans can't even possibly relate to. Well, and I also think just the cost is something that people can't relate to either. We can do an awful lot for not that much money. I mean, if you took the USNS Comfort, which is a Navy ship mm -hmm. that gets uh, sent out after major disasters, the earthquake, Puerto Rico, uh, and the hurricane that hit there, um, you, you are spending literally millions of dollars a day to keep this ship running. And if you took that money and you invested it into the Haitian healthcare system, you wouldn't have to send a ship from the comfort to stand there for a couple of weeks and then leave and not be able to continue that care. So I think there's also the question of how do we take relatively small amounts of money, invest them in the health sector, 
and they really start to pay dividends. And that, you know, investing in the health sector is the basis for an economy as well. People can't work if they're sick all the time. So Haiti, Haiti certainly took a, a real tough blow with the earthquake. Do you, do you feel like there's a little bit of momentum building up now that, you know, there's a little bit of few years of recovery and, and do you see progress or it's because that's got to be really challenging to mentally and, and morally, you know, or not morally, but um, emotionally? I mean, I would say the, there's a collective uh, in some way uh, post-traumatic stress that's yeah. gone on in the country and that so many people went through this horrible event where mm-hmm. 250,000 people died and everything changed in less than a minute. Yeah, um, but uh, that being said, it, it's a little bit of a cliche, but the the resiliency of the Haitian people is, is truly remarkable. And I, I have never seen a group that's been able to bounce back from something that horrible where you had you know, over a million people living in tents, yeah. people displaced and living all over the place. And now, you know, those those tent cities are gone. People have figured out how to, or at least tried to figure out how to get back into regular housing uh, and become productive members of uh, society again. It's been remarkable what yeah. they've gone through, but also that there is a real resiliency. Right. The, you know, the life is definitely back in Port-au-Prince in the way that it was, frankly, before the earthquake. That's encouraging. It's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. Jefferson, one of the things uh, that I often hear about the restaurant industry is, um, and you had mentioned kind of the immigrant nature of, of many of the staff, is that, you know, just the nature of the, the industry and the kind of the slim margins for a lot of places, you've got a lot of staff who are often living right on the edge of poverty, notwithstanding, you know, management's best efforts to make sure that they're fairly compensated. Um, and I was, I was curious, just because we're in the middle of what's going to be a long-lasting immigration debate in this country, uh, with your employees, is there a palpable sense of uh, concern, fear, going about their business they're definitely, as usual? Or? Yeah, yeah there, there no question is. Uh, you know, we as owners try to assure them that, look, there's nothing we're going to do that's, we're, we're going to look out for you. We're going to look out for you and try to do whatever it takes to make sure that if anything comes down the pike, you know, it's it's hard to know. There's a lot of rumors. There's a lot of you, you see headlines, but but is it really going to happen? And we're going to do whatever we can to protect them in that regard, because, you know, what people don't understand in the current direction on the immigration debate is, well, you know, say goodbye to half of the things that you currently enjoy in your life as far as, you know, um, the restaurant business, it, it would come to its knees because, you know, a restaurant comes to its knees if the dish if the dish team doesn't show up. And guess what? That's a bulk of, of the people that are in question right now and being discussed. Um, so, you know, that's that's one thing that's that's a constant stress, but we do our best to try to diffuse that. What what we also do on the economic side is, you know, we're we're in a state though with a with a very high minimum wage and, and we're big proponents of that. Um, but we also are in a in a city where a ton of restaurants have opened. And so you have to be competitive on this on the labor side and how you compensate them. And so what we do is instead of raising prices. Uh, we start to assign a what we call a kitchen administration fee to every bill. And um, that gets assigned as a 3% uh, fee that then we pass along to our, our back of the house. And the reason is because over the last you know several decades, you have seen a difference and a disparity between what the back of the house earns, and I mean that by the, the cooks and the, and the dish team, and what the front of house wait, you know, servers and, and bartenders earn. And the reason is because every time your prices go up, uh, the front of house, which is compensated by tips, their their salaries go up. But back of the house, you can only squeeze out a raise every five years or three years, and you try to keep them up. But but they quickly get outdistanced by pricing. 
And so by doing a kitchen admin fee, it essentially allows you then, then to tie some of their compensation to the top line. So this seems like a version of what Danny Meyer in New York Very calls so. yep. service included that's right. or hospitality that's included. Right. Uh, that's It's a fee on your that's it. check and it, it we, creates we, a little bit more quality between the front of the house and it, the back And that house. was our goal. And, and uh, you know, it Have others followed suit? That's impressive. There, there are a fair amount of, there, I think there is in Boston a, a nice little groundswell of that because of the environment that we're in and, and you need to be competitive, but you also, it's so expensive to live in this town. And so, um, you know, on average, I think our folks are seeing about a buck forty, a buck forty-five an hour extra in their pay just from this kitchen admin fee. And we feel, you know, could we have raised prices? Absolutely. We get a lot of pushback from some guests. Uh, not a lot, but occasionally you get pushback. Why didn't you just raise prices? And if we had done that, then it would have been on us to try to look at our numbers and try to squeeze out a raise for everybody. This way, it's automatic. It goes right to the right to the back of the house. We put it in the context when your your typical line cook in Boston earns about sixteen dollars and fifty cents an hour. You know, that's about a ten percent increase, uh, just under a ten percent increase, eight percent or so that that they're experiencing just because of that kitchen admin fee. Um, you know, we've had line cooks that were having to consider leaving the city. Uh, to live on the outskirts or in the suburbs, and, and this allowed them to at least stay within the city. Uh, it's, it's certainly not a huge increase, but it's enough that they could actually live within the city uh, environs. And on the uh, for the customer on the bill, Jefferson, it just reads kitchen administrative fee, or well, it is, or, and, is but there's a, there's language that we have to say so that they don't. There, there's uh, legalities in in Massachusetts, particularly where you have to make sure they understand that it's it's a service fee that it's not a service fee going to front of house staff. It's an actual administrative fee that's going only to back of the house. You have to be very clear, and we have a lot of language to explain that. Yeah. But but when we opened up. You know, we we Danny had just rolled out for like the last six months. He had just done his his uh, service no included. tipping policy, no tipping, and included. and you know we struggled with should we do that or should we do a little bit of what we're doing like right now? And we we felt like unfortunately or fortunately, however you feel about it, Americans like to tip. They like to be able to express their opinion, and when you take that ability away from them, uh, we thought it would be a struggle. So we opted not to go that route and instead go this more calculated route. And and has there has there been a pushback on the three percent from customers? Have been people embraced it? I mean, three percent compared to you know, if if the staff is really seeing sure. a significant change, three percent is really not that much when it comes down yeah. to it. But are you getting any pushback from? Yeah, you know, the irony is if we had just baked it into the pricing, nobody would have said anything. The fact you call it out, some people have a a philosophical problem about it, like they're being, well, why don't you just raise prices? And it's like, well, we could have, but we actually opted to take a different stand. And what we find it is is an opportunity to educate people. Uh, the the pushback we get is infrequent. When it is, it's pretty um, energized, unfortunately, and and that's our opportunity to educate somebody. Uh, but that being said, you know we we really believe in it. It's it's something we we think is the right thing to do, and and we continue to push for it. I was also thinking of what you were saying earlier about restaurants being a little bit of an oasis where people can come and kind of get away from the the stresses and the pressures. And it feels yeah, like it could be a reminder. Just like you know, working in Washington at least, um, you know, the way people are so stressed about the news this last year in politics people need a restaurant to get to where they can just you know sit down with friends and and be away from it it's uh it well feels you know like... and being in boston it's a sports town so you can't not have tvs right. you know when the pats are on or the yes. you know something pivotal <laughs> but but what we do is we do have the tvs covered and they they will not be on unless there's something really you know the oscars or something like that that people may want to enjoy only in the bar area because there are too many screens in our lives and the screens always tell us bad things. <laughs> um, well, as we uh, wrap up here, I want to hear what's next for uh, 
both of you are, at least where your leadership is taking St. Boniface, Connor, what you hope to achieve. And, and also if you could, you know, if you could wave, wave the, uh, the proverbial magic wand, um, in terms of policy, uh, and, and get our country's policy, the world community to act differently towards Haiti, what would you do? And for those of us who care about it, those who are listening that want to know, could they make a difference, uh, for a place like Haiti or for an organization like St. Boniface, what do they do? I know that the, that's a lot of questions uh, loaded in there, but you can handle it. So uh, I think for us going forward, uh, we've grown a significant amount, uh, doubled patient load over the last couple of years, have some new buildings coming online that are really exciting, a new uh, Center for Infectious Disease and Emergency Care. So those are all the immediate things. But I think over time, the real key for us is building out the quality of care that we provide making sure that our patients uh, receive uh, the quality of care they deserve. I think the second piece of our growth now is we've become one of three national maternal and child health training centers for the country. So there's 13 hospitals and clinics from throughout the Southern Peninsula that come to us for training. And I think working on uh, budding partnerships with Mass General, as an example, other teaching hospitals, uh, other medical schools, and looking at how we can start to build up those other 13 hospitals and clinics around the Southern Peninsula uh, so that they also have the ability to provide the care that we're able to provide at St. Boniface. Uh, in terms of you know, the U.S. policy towards Haiti, uh, I am concerned about the latest uh, budget that's come out uh, this week. Uh, they're uh, proposing uh, massive cuts uh, to USAID, not just in Haiti, but uh, around the world. And I think um, you know, which, is, which is the Agency for International yeah, Development through which we fund a lot of you know, anti-poverty work around the world. Exactly. And it's really the State Department's wing for being able to uh, do some soft diplomacy and think through how we can project the image we want uh, around the world and, and be able to uh, show uh, how great we all think the United States is. And uh, I'm concerned that we continue to pour money into defense uh, but not thinking through some of the soft power of being able to provide services like health care and other uh, services and other training programs that can start to build up uh, other uh, countries, uh, their democracies, et cetera. So I, I think there's uh, a lot to be concerned about with U.S. foreign policy and where we're headed now and how we can uh, all try to uh, talk to our elected uh, representatives about how to make sure things like uh, the U.S. Uh, foreign assistance through USAID is not cut. Uh, and your website, Connor? Is uh, HaitiHealth.org. HaitiHealth.org. And folks can find out how they can donate, how they can get involved, how they can be supportive. All the above. Thanks, Billy. Um, Jefferson, what's uh, what's around the corner for you? Is there going to be a second bar mitzvah? Is there going to be a second <laughs> restaurant? Oh, sure. what, can you, what can you tell us? Yeah, I, I can share a few things. So uh, when we first, the partners and I first, pushed out and, and started growing uh, Bar Metzana and planning Bar Metzana, we set a long-term vision of trying to have multiple concepts in about five years. Uh, that, can you, that way you can have a real impact. Um, but more importantly, you can also grow your team and retain your team. And so in our regards, you know, we're planning a second concept that we hope to announce very soon, um, hopefully in the neighborhood uh, where we are right now with Bar Metzana makes it easier for management. But ultimately, our hope is to, uh, with in employees that have been with us now for a little while and have a vested interest in what we're doing, we're going we're gonna to have them have the ability to become owners themselves. 
um, and share the uh, oh, the wealth of the. That's well, exciting. I don't know. Wealth is maybe an overstatement in the restaurant world, but share at least some of the ownership stake in in the the next concept that they they help grow with us. So uh, yeah, that's that's something we believe in, and that's a vision that we want to do. And that way, we can also have more impact in the community. Uh, last question for you, Jefferson. Do you have kids yet? And if you do, do they know that they're going to West Point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I was very fortunate uh, late in life to have a uh, to have a little girl this past summer. So she's eight months oh, old. Oh, congratulations! Thank you very much. And uh, you know, we I've I've thought about it, and the reality is, uh, if she wants to go, it will be her choice. Okay, <laughs> we'll leave it at that for That's now. It. We'll That's check it. in with you later on this. <laughs> yeah, right. No kidding. Uh, Jefferson Macklin from Bar Mitzana, thank you so much for being with us, and Connor Shapiro for the work you're doing uh, with the St. Boniface Haiti Foundation, really life-saving work, and both of you for your service to community and country. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.